The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and we are going to read, the, we're going to look at Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we will pray and ask for God's help as we work through these verses together. By the way, I have two of these little Galatians Bible thingies. If you want one, ask me for them. I may not have them on me today, (laughs) but I'm reading out of that anyways. So, um, Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. This is Paul picking up where he left off, talking about his missionary biography. Then, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running in vain, nor had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, and because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel must be preserved. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that we had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. God, as we look at these words together and we think about what you are doing through Paul in this moment in your kingdom to advance the gospel's scope and diversity, we pray that we would experience the passion of your missionary heart to see your family expand throughout the globe. And so we pray that we would join with Paul in celebrating all that you are doing to make Jesus look great. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What I want to do, as we get kind of started in these verses, is I want to bring you into one of my nerdy passions. I have uh, several nerdy passions, and one of them is um, St. Patrick. I'm not sure how many of you know, uh, how many are you familiar with what St. Patrick's Day is? Do you know the date offhand? March 17th, right? I'm not going to ask what you do on that day. That is between you and the Lord, and we are in a recovery center, so we shall not speak of it. But March 17th, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, and um, this is one of my favorite kind of nerd-out moments, is I love studying the, the history of what God did, not only through St. Patrick, but then the missionary movement that kind of came from him, and then ultimately how it failed in this Celtic region, in the... Uh, early church there in uh, in the English Isles. So, can we throw up this slide here? This is an actual picture of St. Patrick. 
Um, no, this is actually by um, an artist uh, that I'm a big fan of down in Pensacola, Florida. It's a block print. You can actually get that off Etsy. But um, I just put it up because nobody actually knows what he looks like, and I'm like, well, this looks better than anything else. But St. Patrick, <laughs> St. Patrick, the quick history on St. Patrick um, is that he um, was the son of a deacon in the uh, English coastland. He got captured by Irish pirates, taken over to Ireland, enslaved for six years, eventually uh, slipped out, fled, um, got back to England, and felt this impulse, this incredible call of God to be trained for ministry and then go back to the, uh, to the Irish to bring the gospel to them. So, and eventually he kind of like confronted his master, slave owner, etc. Um, all these legends come out of the life of St. Patrick, like, you know, there's no snakes in Ireland because he drove them all out, because, you know, get out of here, Satan sort of stuff. All that stuff is all legends that were added after the fact. You can actually read St. Patrick's confessions, like his basically life journal. None of those miraculous things get mentioned. It's all about what God did in him to reveal Jesus to him, and what God did through him to reveal Jesus to the Irish. So, I put this picture up here just to kind of help you understand, like, I... I will confess, uh, until I was in my 20s, I didn't realize that Philadelphia was um, below or, like, next to New Jersey. <laughs> so, like, some of us are just, like, geographically ignorant, and we just have to embrace it, that we, we actually have to just say, you know, I actually need to know where Ireland is on this whole thing. So, that's where Ireland is on the map. Ireland is right there next to it, and it, the, the top of Ireland kind of hits at that moment where Scotland and England meet, and kind of that sweep of the islands is where this whole people called the Celts were. And that's a very broad term to be like New England, where there are lots of different types of Celts, there are lots of different uh, ethnicities and lots of different uh, languages, practices, religions, etc. But one missiologist and historian um, quoted in this book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism by Gregory Hunter. I would highly recommend it. It's about 150 pages, 200 or something like that. Celtic Way of Evangelism. He says this. An ancient document called the Annals of the Foremasters reports that Patrick's mission planted, this is by Patrick's mission by the end of his life, right? Patrick's mission planted about 700 churches and that Patrick ordained perhaps 1,000 priests within his lifetime, 30 to 40 or more of Ireland's 150 tribes became substantially Christian. That is incredible. I mean, to imagine this guy, basically, you could imagine him around 25 years old, being trained for ministry, going back, and then he dies, I don't know, like, what, 80 years old or something like that. So over the course of, like, 50 years, I mean, first of all, I mean, Peter and David are great, but getting them ordained was, like, pulling teeth. It was a huge, long process. I can't imagine doing that a thousand times. Like, good gracious. It was a, a just the amount of effort that goes into that. And by the way, they could probably say the same thing about my ordination, right? Just this is a big, pig-headed guy. So this is not digging anybody. But just to imagine, like, the amount of effort that that goes, just the success that you see. And then, obviously, here we are almost 1,500 years later, and we still know this poor guy's name, right? And we celebrate him for whatever reason with whatever gets put into your glass on March 17th. <laughs> but the other part of the story is the failure, ultimate failure, of what happened to the Celtic mission. And what I want to lay out for you is, see, after Patrick's death and all of the success, they had really developed 
Here's how we bring the gospel to the Celts. We are embodying the gospel. We're embodying Jesus. We're spreading the good news of who he is to all these people. So let's take it from this Irish island here, and let's go back over to Scotland and northern England to the Celtic tribes and start planting churches and seeing Jesus do more of this stuff. And here's what they did, right? This is like the Celtic way of evangelism, right? What they did is they just largely, they would come in and they would live beside the culture. They would embody what the culture looked like and lived like. And they would speak the culture's language. And then they would be a healthy version of the culture they lived next to to invite them into a new community. That doesn't sound very radical, does it? So what they did is like, they, now we're going to start to list out a few things that really kind of started to push the buttons of the people back home in Rome. Priests would wear their hair like the Celtic priests. Not a big deal. Probably like, I don't know what it was, dreads or something. I don't know. I don't think about hair fashion, obviously. They spoke the worship services in the native Celtic language, whatever, that was, whatever version that was. They took on the holidays of the Celtic pagan religion and adjusted them towards Christian ones. They spoke about the Christian life in the cultural language of the day, which was more kind of artsy, imaginative, kind of that side of the brain, whereas in the, the church at Rome, they were much more logical sequence of events. Here's how everything lines up. They built their church buildings out of wood rather than stone. And this is one of the things that really tipped off everybody at Rome. They used an ancient calendar to determine their Easter celebration as opposed to the Roman calendar, which put the Easter celebration on a different date. Now, when I list these things out, I'm sure you're thinking, like, this does not sound like something to get all in a tough about. But it caused a massive stir because worship services by the Church of Rome, they were done in Latin. The priest had the halo cut, right? They, they built their buildings out of stone. They used a, a very specific calendar date. They did not pick up on the, the, the religious, like, cultural stuff of the day. They basically expected church plants and church planting work to look like the churches in Rome. One historian that Hunter quotes is David Bosch, and he says, By and large, Catholicism endorsed the principle that, quote, a missionary church must reflect in every detail, the Roman custom of the moment. Ultimately, this led towards this uh, synod of uh, Whitby in 1664 A.D., almost 200 years after uh, Patrick died, where they really pressed down on the hair thing and the Easter thing, and they really ultimately said, if you're going to be a part of God's global family, you've got to do it the Roman way. That led towards ultimately the squelching and the dying out of the Celtic mission which is tragic to think about. Like, here's all these people. They are reaching the, the, these islands of, you know, literally Celtic pagans for, for Jesus, bringing them into the family of God. But the central higher-ups said, you know what? Our culture and our way of doing things is so important. We fought so hard for this that you must reflect that in how you reach Jesus, people for Jesus. How do we know that they're going to be real Christians unless they act and talk like us? That's kind of what we're running into here in Galatians 2. We're running into these, uh, these conflicts of cultures while the gospel advances. Do you notice how at the beginning of the passage he talks about, uh, I brought Titus with me, who was a legitimate Greek, and he didn't have any problems with him, and then all these brothers swept in kind of behind the back door to say, we've got to do it by these Jewish customs. 
Well, what you're running into is the same thing that we saw in this kind of illustration of Patrick and the Irish missions. There are cultural things, the way we expect things to run, the way we think that God's family must look and talk and speak and smell and behave, that really when they come down to it, there is a clash of cultures. What Paul is helping us understand, what Paul is driving us into here, is that gospel culture must have the day for the gospel to advance and build God's global kingdom, God's global family. Right? And you can understand why the, the church, I, want to, I want to build a sympathy for both in the Celtic situation, the Church of Rome, but in Paul's situation with the Jewish traditions. Right? Imagine, you have been a church, the global church of Jesus Christ, for four or five hundred years. You have overcome three hundred years of oppression. You've actually taken over the, uh, the seat of the, the Roman world that was oppressing you. It has been a long, hard fight to get to this point. And what we have done and accomplished really is the mark of God's faithfulness in our lives. This Roman way of doing things really is God's blessing this. And so you guys just really seem to look like us because God's blessed this version of what Christianity can look like. You can imagine for the Jews at the time, right, we think like, what is up with all of this circumcision stuff? Like, come on, it's not that big a deal. But for them, it was 1,500 years of scraping and fighting to survive as God's people. And we just spent 1,500 years getting to this point for the Messiah to show up, guys. And, and you're telling me Messiah shows up and 1,500 years is worth nothing? Like it doesn't actually mean anything? Give me a break. This stuff, is... Paul, you've been a Christian for 15 years. Grateful. <laughs> We've got 1,500 years of obeying Moses behind us when we say, this stuff has got to matter. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And he's saying, no, the gospel culture, gospel culture must have its, its sway. It must have its day in order for God to build his global, diverse family. So what does the gospel say about our culture? Here's the main point of this passage we're going to look at in four parts. Main point here is just simply, this passage calls us to celebrate God's diverse mission to build his global family. Right? I'm really grateful that Felipe preached for us on global missions, and it comes up here in this passage. I want to show you where this main, as I was talking last week, like every passage kind of has like its main verse. Main verse in this passage is verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So verse 8 is where we're getting this main point. We are called in this passage to celebrate God's diverse mission to build his global family. So, how does the gospel culture celebrate, how does a gospel culture that we are called to in this passage celebrate God's mission to build this global family? So the first thing we're going to look at here is that gospel culture celebrates encouragement. Gospel culture what is the, the language, what is the heartbeat of gospel culture? The first thing we're going to pick up here is verse 1 and 2. Gospel culture celebrates encouragement. For after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, right? Barnabas, whose name is literally son of encouragement, right? So there's a first key off, taking Barnabas with him, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and, and set before them, though privately to those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order that I make to make sure I was not running, nor had run 
in vain. You notice right out of the gate, he kind of mentions it in passing, like because of this revelation. Well, we, we talked about last year, 1 Corinthians, we talked about what the spiritual gift of prophecy is. Prophecy is building up God's people with a specific word of encouragement for them at that time. It's not authoritative. It's not like make your life decisions on it, but it's like, hey, you know what? God really wants to do something in you to encourage you and fill in the blank specific ways. And Paul obviously got a prophetic word of some type that led him to say, you know what? It's going to be really helpful if we go back to Jerusalem to kind of build these ties, talk with our bros, you know, shake hands, all that stuff, whatever they do, I don't know, and build, um, make sure that these Gentile churches that we've just been planting and working with for the last 14 years are encouraged, right? And I think that's what actually what he means by here at the end, in order, of verse 2, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run and not run in vain, he's not saying, hey, you know what, I really, I really needed Peter and James' stamp of approval. I needed the notoriety on my gospel message, like, James, here, you sign here, notarized stamp, Peter, you, you sign here, stamp. Didn't need stamp of approval. I think what he's framing this as, because you'll notice how he kind of takes these digs along the way. They seemed important. They didn't add anything to me. So they didn't add anything to him. What is he saying then when he says to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain? Well, his running for the last 14 years had been planting and building and strengthening churches, probably at like ridiculous rates like, rates like St. Patrick, right? I mean, the guy's just like ordaining people left and I mean, not like, hey, you want an ordination? Here's an ordination. <laughs> you want a church plant? You're a church plant. You know, he had a thorough process to it, but still at an incredible rate and in making sure, you know what? These churches among the Gentiles, I want to make sure that that race that we've been running to plant them, you know what's really important? The way it was right now, the church at the time is centered around, make, our unity is represented in having fellowship with everybody in Jerusalem. So I'm going to go, I'm going to represent these bros, and I'm going to go represent them and make sure that they have equal standing at the table of God with God's people in Jerusalem. I think it was more about making sure that everybody was equally represented, equally affirmed, equally encouraged, equally delighted in as being a part of God's diverse family by going back to Jerusalem. And in a certain sense, you kind of pick up to the rest of this passage. He's kind of fighting to make the case, hey, these guys who are Greeks and Gentiles, very different from you Jewish guys, they're still a part of God's family. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He is making sure that God's new global family was being encouraged and, excited and, and celebrated. Because you can imagine the benefit for that for the Gentiles back home, because they can kind of feel like they're second-class citizens, right? Like, I know these Jews believers have had 1,500 years of tradition. I've been a Christian for five minutes. Like, do I have to do my, my time until I'm celebrated and a part of God's family? No, no, no. You're adopted late. You're, ado- you're, you're adopted first thing in the family. You're still in the family. It's a part of who you are. You are a part of God's family. So, I think what Paul is talking about here is just simply, for us and our life together in God's family, we have to work hard, work very hard, to make sure that those who are, who would perceive themselves as being second-class citizens in the family of God, experience the richness, fullness, and equality of being fully vested members full members of God's family. How can we do the hard work of ensuring that people exploring Jesus or new to him feel encouraged and invited into God's family? I think that's what Paul is saying here in a certain sense. Gospel culture is not looking to make sure that people meet, meet the marks of, well, if you're really part of God's family, you do this, this, this. No, no. 
right out of the gate, being a part of God's family is saying, I see that I need Jesus to be my King and Savior and Lord to save me from my sin and Satan and death. And not only has he done it, but he willingly and eagerly invites me into God's family. How do we do the hard work so that those who are our neighbors here in the city, who have legitimately, some of them never been to a church, don't even know if Moses is in the Old Testament or New Testament, that they know when they begin to hear about Jesus, they are equally invited into God's family. We want to be, have a gospel culture that celebrates encouragement. Okay, we're going to pick up here in verse 3 to 5. So not only does gospel culture celebrates encouragement, gospel culture celebrates honesty. So we're going to look at here verse 3 to 5. Okay, let me read this for you, and then we will kind of break this down a little bit. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, what's going on here is, um, there, Paul is obviously making a very contentious point of saying, look, we didn't yield for a moment to these false teachers. Like that, That's maybe a summary of what he says here. But I find it fascinating, and I want you to always remember... When you see a long phrase like this in the Greek, you have to remember, or if a long phrase like this in the Greek, it would have taken not only a lot of time to write that out, but it would have been incredibly, massively expensive to write it out. Like Paul's, his main point is basically, look, these guys came in to try to bring us back under the, under the Jewish circumcision. We didn't yield them for a minute. Period. I said that in what 15 words, and Paul spends like 40 words talking about this here. You have to pick up that Paul in the midst of all of making that single point, why did God inspire him to spend all this time laying out what we would recognize as his emotions? Bishop Lightfoot, a commentator from the 18th century, or 19th century, he talks about the Greek in this passage, and he says, quote, it's a shipwreck of grammar. <laughs> and then John Stott, um, God bless him, I love him, he says here, on commenting on this, Paul is evidently writing under the stress of strong emotion, even of considerable embarrassment. He leaves sentences, the sentence in verse 4 unfinished, and we can only guess what he would have said if he had completed it. Right? So you see here, yet um, because of false brothers secretly brought in, dash, well, because of what? He doesn't actually, if you know, do your English grammar and you diagram sentences, by the way, I failed at diagramming sentences. I still passed and graduated high school. <laughs> if you diagram that sucker out, there's no resolution to the, to the grammar. He is very angry. You can pick that up. And if you look at this, kind of, you begin to pull that out and say, he's so angry. Have you ever been so angry that you're kind of like, I can't believe, and, and then they, and, and they said this, and I can't believe... That's what Paul's doing here. He's just kind of like huffing and puffing. He's angry. I mean, you get his point, right? Just like you would if you're listening to a friend who's venting. But his anger is coming out here. And he's writing, he's fighting for the right cause, right? He's fighting for gospel purity. He's fighting that gospel purity, the, the pure faith in Jesus Christ, is the only mark of what it means to be a part of the people of God. But we have to ask the question, why is circumcision such a big deal? Right, because we're going to keep bringing this up. Right, why is circumcision such a big deal in this context? Well, you can imagine. 
Here's God's people. They have been, devi- they have been um, defined by being the people who, are, who have this whole moral, ethical code of you don't eat these foods, you, don't, you do eat these foods, you don't have mixed fabric, you don't do this, you, you worship on this day, you take that day off as a full day of rest. Very different from the outside culture, but some of those things are kind of, well, you have to go by your word that, that Jamie didn't eat pork for, or bacon during the week. I don't know. I'm not in his house, right? And maybe I can't quite tell whether somebody's fabrics are mixed or not, you know? And, well, you know, somebody was sick last week and they didn't come to church on Saturday, but I know they usually do. You don't actually know for sure. Circumcision would have been the one where it was, bro, you are for real about this Jewish thing, right? That thing hurts, it's uncomfortable, and it is permanent, right? It's it is effectively like a permanent tattoo on your family of saying, we are a part of the people of God. Our faith is for real, real. And so then you come into this situation where the people of God are defined by faith. So how do we know if they're really real or not about their faith in Jesus? So that's kind of the, the idea behind some of this. Why, I just want to help you be sympathetic, not empathetic, right? But understand why these arguments are going on. They needed a way of knowing if somebody's faith was real. And Paul's anger is going after this. People are known and celebrated and fully a part of God's global family in Jesus because they believe in the king, period. Not for any of these identifiers, not for any of these rules or laws that they keep. Faith alone is the only marker of God's people. Which, by the way, period, I'm just going to, can I just do a, a, like, a parenthesis, just a parenthesis point? We're Baptists here. We don't baptize babies. The argument for baptizing babies is that baptism for our, our pedo brothers and sisters, uh, baptism replaces circumcision as the mark of God's people, and so you baptize babies like you would circumcise little baby boys. Um, I'm just saying, if that's what the Bible wanted us to believe, this would be one of the best points in all of Scripture to mention that. It would have come up at some point in the book of Galatians. It's all about circumcision, and there's never once made the equation of, oh, but you can imagine this whole argument. Like, it could be easily solved. Like, why are you guys worrying about the circumcision thing? We baptize people now. Never makes that argument. Because Jesus doesn't believe that. All right, end of, end of, sorry, end of parentheses. Paul's anger here is what I want to pull off for you. He is in the midst of this, this debate. In the midst of this issue, he is being honest about his emotions, right? I, that's what I'm trying to pull off for you, is that here in this cultural battle, this, this battle for our family identity in Jesus, he is being honest about what he's angry about. He's being honest about what's frustrating him. He's being forthright and upfront about what his problems are, right? These brothers slipped in. They're false brothers by what he says, and they use religious language and talk about God's glory, but their agenda is clear. They do not aim at gospel freedom. Ungospel or anti-gospel culture breeds toxic, enslaving cultures in churches and networks. That's what Paul is, he is angry about. They are trying to bring us into a slavery. And that slavery to whatever that, that agenda is, their agenda at the moment was to try to get people under the Jewish law, was toxic and enslaving. Wade Mullen, who's a, he wrote a book recently called Something's Not Right. He just simply says, a safe community believes people, gives people freedom to say something's not right. Paul is being honest and saying, something's not right here about what you guys are trying to do. 
Paul's honest and he's distressed and his emotions are in, his emotions, his angry emotions, his honest emotions are a part of the inspired scripture that we have in front of us. Which leads me to realize that for us as a gospel culture, we want to celebrate people being honest about their emotions and where they're at. I'm not saying that you need to be angry about everything all the time. I'm not saying that you need to be angry most of the time. But we can have this religious veneer to say you should never be angry. And if you're angry, that's wrong. Actually, Paul's angry, and it's right here. I'm not saying that it happens all the time, but I am saying that Paul is angry for the right reasons, and he's honest about it, and he's willing to work through it with his brothers and sisters. We need, and I think that we do live in this, to have this understanding that there is a healthy expression of appropriate anger. Right? His honesty about his emotions doesn't hold people hostage to his emotions. But he is honest about what he's feeling what he's experiencing. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but it's happened to me where I've been angry about something, expressed it, and it's never happened in this church, angry about something, expressed it, and I've had my anger used against me as saying like, well, Jacob, it really sounds you're angry. Well, it's like, well, yeah, because we're talking about life or death issues here that are serious and important, right? Paul's saying, basically, we are talking occasionally from time to time about things in the church that you should be angry about. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to stay angry, right? We work towards resolution and unity and peace, but having anger and expressing that is a healthy part of the Christian life. It is healthy for you to not only experience things that are angering, sad, negative emotions, but to process those out loud with other people, right? You know, it's even okay to say those things about God himself. What do you think the Psalms do all the time? God, I am angry, fill in the blank, at you, fill in the blank. Those are inspired scripture. It's okay to have and express negative emotions. A healthy gospel culture gives us a space to say those things and express and be honest, but then also is a culture that says, we're going to come alongside that and work towards resolution in Jesus for whatever that is. Right? A, go- a gospel culture brings new people to Jesus' family. And even sometimes those things really make us mad. You know, why is God doing this or that? Why, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank. We move towards Jesus in a gospel healthy culture at finding clarity and resolution to our emotions. You guys tracking what, what we're saying here? Is that, is that cool? I'm not like totally speaking out of like left field, right? Peter, am I in trouble? Okay. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of time this weekend with the retreat to kind of like polish this up. So you guys are just going to get the draft one edition of this, but <laughs> we're, um, we're going to pick up here in verses six to nine, and we're going to say that not only is gospel culture encouraging and honest, gospel culture celebrates diversity. Gospel culture celebrates diversity, and as we get into this passage, I want to give you a little bit of an illustration to kind of help us understand what Paul's doing here. Has anybody here been up to the Franconia Notch and, and done the hike between um, Lafayette, Hill, uh, Lincoln, and, and Little Haystack. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's not unique to that moment, but it's, I've, I've walked it. Thankfully, I survived. But like any sort of like hike on the ridge of a mountain, you have a sheer drop on one side and a sheer drop on the other side, and you don't have a lot of wiggle room. You have to stay on the trail, right? So I want to pick up on that illustration and say, for Paul... He has this sort of moment to kind of to weave as he's, as he's helping these people uh, celebrate God's diverse family. He has on one side, 
he has, if he says something that distances himself too much from the, from the apostles in Jerusalem, his opponents can say, see, you didn't get the full download on the gospel. You didn't get the full picture. They've got a better picture, and we can disregard you, Paul. So he's got that on the other side, on one side. On the other side, if he distances himself um, too, too closely uh, or too far from the apostles, he starts breaking up the unity of the church, right? So if you break up the unity of the church, that's a no-no, don't do that. <laughs> so on the one side, if he's too close to the apostles, it's like, well, you know what, really, they, they had more gospel truth than you do, so we're going to need to go with them, and we're going to do the circumcision thing. On the other side, he's got, if he distances himself too much, well, you're actually not a part of the true faith, so we should disregard you. Paul has to walk this mountain edge between these true truths, these true dynamics, to help preserve that the gospel is from Jesus that Paul has received, the gospel that he has been preaching is the pure gospel, and that we preach the same message as these guys who are really important to you. Right? That's the kind of what he has to come out of this with. So you notice here, on the one hand, through this passage, he says, seemed three times, right? Verses 6, 7, and 9. And for those who seemed to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Right? I just want to say, can you imagine, like, having met Peter? <laughs> like, this is Peter, right? I'm just saying, if I met Peter, I would probably be overly deferential. That's just me, probably just because I like to suck up to people. But you got Peter, who's like the guy who walked on water, saw the glorified Christ. He's in the Bible a lot. Well, he seemed imp- important, but... God says no partiality. says it again, right? Those who seemed influential, and they added nothing to me. And then verse 9, and then James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, right? He draws it out again. They seemed, they seemed, they seemed, right? But really, they added nothing to my gospel message. And yet, on the other hand, you'll notice this, right? Verse uh, 7, on the contrary, when they saw that we have been entrusted with the gospel. And then verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived, right? So they saw and they perceived, they evaluated and they were looking at, they were giving great attention to something, the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. So on the one hand, you have Paul saying, they seemed blot, they seemed blot, whatever. On the other hand, they saw, they perceived, and they gave the right hand of fellowship. So Paul is walking this very tight line so that he is saying the apostles, they, they preach the same gospel, but they didn't add anything to my gospel. But because we preach the same gospel and they preach the same gospel, we have the right hand of fellowship. So you see, here is this celebration of diversity. And right in the heart of all of this is verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Here is why I'm saying this is the central verse of this whole passage because the he, that pronoun, who is that? That's God himself. God is the missionary in this passage that is driving all of this book of Acts stuff, right? Peter's missionary work to the, uh, to the circumcised. By the way, we can't say too much about him being only to the circumcised because he was the one in Acts 10 who basically led the Gentiles into God's people. So it's not like exclusive. It's general tones. 
And then you have on the other hand Paul, who's doing all this crazy stuff, you know, being bitten by snakes and throwing them into the fire and all that stuff. That's still God's work through him to build all these churches that he's been planting and building and strengthening over 14 years. All of that, Peter and Paul, they seemed important, not that important. Who's the important one here? It's God himself. God's the one who's eager to reach both Jews and Gentiles, free and enslaved, men and women, which we're going to talk about later in Galatians. All of these diverse, very different people to bring them into one global, expanding, celebrating family. That's what God's doing in this. God is the one driving this mission. And I want you to get this because it is essential to recognize we join God's mission, period. We don't do missionary work and then God shows up to sprinkle his blessing on it. Church plant here in Manchester, King's Cross, we always talk about it. We are joining what God's doing in Manchester and the Manchester area for God's glory. We don't get to decide if God shows up. God does something, we join it. So, there's a couple things I want us to draw out of this, and then we'll, we'll move on. But I think that's interesting. Did you notice how Paul talks about how they seemed, they seemed important? And you're talking about the 12 apostles who get showed up in the book of Revelation as being like highly important in the pillars of the church and all that sort of stuff. I just think for us, there is a check on our own uh, cultural obsession with celebrities. There is something in this to help us check our own yearning to have celebrity pastors, right? And I'm not saying that you guys make me a celebrity. God knows I have no qualifications to be a celebrity pastor. I'm just a guy with an Instagram account and some weights in my garage. Like, I'm not very impressive or important. But we can do this with people that we highly value. I can do this as well, right? I've talked about Tim Keller in the back. Like, he's like the patron saint at King's Cross. Um, we should never make... Sh- we should never have any type of cult of personality around Tim Keller. Like, I love him, grateful for him, but you know what? Tim Keller should never plant and build a church in Manchester, New Hampshire. And that's not to say that I'm better than him or that you're, uh, that you're somehow dependent on me. It could be anybody else that plants this church. It is the fact that God used Tim Keller in Manhattan to build a church there. God's using us to build a church here. It's God who is the missionary, right? I love Tim Keller's books. They're great and fascinating. 500 years, people are probably not going to even read them anymore. Like, he's going to be forgotten. There's very few books that actually stand the test of time. Right? Same thing goes for John Piper. Love him. Grateful for him. I had several critiques down the road, several things I have disagreements with him on. Guy, he's still a great guy. Right? MacArthur, whoever it is. I'm trying to think who are the big names right now. Mark Dever. Are you guys into Mark Dever? Who are the names? I don't even know who that is. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not important. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, whoever it is that we feel like has personally benefited us in a very meaningful way, which is very true for you, Jamie. I know that's true. But whoever they are, we just must recognize whatever those truths are, however we've been built up, however we've been strengthened by them, right? And I know that I totally, women I recognize, I totally listed men on that list, right? We can talk down the road, like Beth Moore, all those people, whoever it is, is whoever it is has benefited you. They have been used by God to engraft his truth, that he loves you in Jesus. And that's what the Bible is all about, to save you from your sin and death, to engraft you into this global family and this kingdom. Whoever it is, they've been used by God to do that. But they aren't the person that we should hang our hat on. They aren't the person that we have to kind of like anxiously pine over what Peter thinks about Peter, the Apostle Peter, not Peter here. The Apostle Peter thinks, or what the Apostle Paul thinks, right? 
we must recognize that we need to use this as a way of just siphoning out our celebrity culture that's engrafted into us by the culture. Second thing I want to point us out here, and then we're going to move on, is that you'll notice that Paul is generally going to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. Peter's going to the circumcised and the Gentiles. And really what's essential to them is that they get the gospel right. All those other things of how they do the culture stuff are left to making sure that the gospel's free to speak in a way that that connects with the culture that's around it. So that's called contextualization, right? Just takes on the culture as context. But the gospel must be preserved in how it's expressed. So there's going to be issues that Peter's going to face in preaching to the Jews that are going to be unique to the Jewish culture that, that Paul's going to preach to, and he's going to speak to the Gentile culture, and they're going to be very different. So, for example, um, I've, I've never been to the continent of Africa. My friends who are missionaries there, they talk about how when you plant churches in these areas, especially areas that are pre, um, predominantly uh, Muslim areas, for the way the Muslim faith ex- expresses itself there is that they will uh, generally, men will have multiple wives. And when you preach the gospel, um, generally uh, the effect should be, um, hey, you know what, uh, we're really not into the uh, polygamy thing. <laughs> not, a good, not a good idea, not God's design. We really, really care about um, uh, monogamy, one man, one woman, uh, that's the way the Bible designed it, that sort of stuff, right? Well, the way that it expresses itself, I've never had to pastor someone, thank God, I've never had to pastor anybody through, how do you walk through, well, I'm married to four women, do you pick your favorite one and then divorce the others? Is the first one your real wife? Like, all that stuff, like, I've never had to pastor through that. The same gospel produces fruit that leads to addressing that issue. The issues that we end up facing are more like um, abuse situations, right? Our culture, the situation that we end up dealing with is how do we deal with women who are in battered relationships and abusive relationships, and how do we walk through what does it look like to be faithful to God in finding freedom, identity, and health? Maybe, maybe that happens a little bit over in those situations. I'm sure it does. To my knowledge, I have no polygamy <laughs> to address if you have multiple wives, uh, we've got to come to Jesus' conversation coming right at you real fast here after the service. But I'm just saying, the culture does demand that the gospel addresses different issues. But it's still the same gospel. And it produces a very diverse expression of what grace looks like in each of those situations, right? For men and women to be saved out of abusive, vulnerable situations is a different fruit for the gospel, still valuable, than the fruit of coming out of a polygamous situation. Right? You, you catch what I'm saying here? The diversity, we don't have to na- nail down all of those things for all time because each of those things are going to be addressed by the sufficiency of Scripture and God's mission to address them through the power of the gospel. That's the diversity we want to celebrate. That's why, for example, we pray for, we're part of Acts 29. Uh, the churches that we pray for, like the global family churches that we pray for on a Sunday morning, those are all Acts 29 churches. We're just grateful for God that we have like a list of global family churches we can pray for. That's why we pray for them, because we want the gospel to be preserved and expressed in a meaningful way wherever it is. Is that tracking, guys? Are we cool? All right. Uh, we're going to end here. I promise. We're, we're, we're coming to the end. Verse 10. So we've talked about how the gospel culture celebrates um, encouragement, honesty, Diversity, and we're going to end here just by looking at verse 10. Gospel culture celebrates empowerment. 
verse 10, right, the only thing that they left the Apostle Paul with, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Right, the mark of the church is not whether they keep Jewish law. It's not whether they're actually connected to Paul or Peter. It's not whether they've been to Jerusalem or not. It's not whether they worship on Saturday or Sunday. The mark for the church of them, for them was, are you remembering the least of these? Are you remembering people who are marginalized by the culture? Are you remembering people who are vulnerable to the powers that be? Are you remembering the people, if you read the book of Luke, that Jesus went to? The people who were marginalized, the people who were not the, the, the center point of the culture, the people who were often overlooked. Christians have always been at their best when they're moving towards the margins of the culture. Right? Not fighting over politics or anything like that, but loving their neighbors and seeing the people that are literally in front of us. The people that live in our, dress, in our same street. Serving the homeless, abused, addicted, distressed, anxious, fearful, those who are, to quote Jesus from Matthew 5, who are poor in spirit. Those who know themselves to be poor in spirit. And bringing them into this family with open arms. What is the poor in spirit given? Theirs is the kingdom of God. When Paul is instructed, also remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It is a call to remember. The power of the gospel is often uniquely expressed and experienced through those who have no power of their own, no cultural powers of be, no status, experiencing the invitation to this kingdom of God that makes them a part of God's global family, a diverse family, a family that looks very different than the way families in the world look like. saying to the people around us who are literally poor, who are culturally poor, God invites you into this family. That's why, as we're looking through this passage, I think Paul's main thrust, his invitation for us, is to celebrate God's diverse mission to build his global family. Because the way he's going to build a family here in Manchester is going to be very different than how he builds in L.A. But we are still a part of God's global diverse family to the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.